The Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there is no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up, but you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into, sea, into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down, um, upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back, uh, may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 3. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This is such a great story. Um, It's filled with layers, hard parts, challenging parts, and delightful parts. Uh, So I'm glad we get to take a look at this together today. Now, we've been calling this series Mixtape, and today we put the mixtape on shuffle. I don't think you can do that with a mixtape, but you know what I mean? Like, we've been going in chronological order, and we just did Ruth and David, and now we're going back to Moses. But this is actually somewhat planned, because overall, we're still following the same theme. We're taking a look at familiar stories and seeing what else we can pull out of these stories. But also, we grouped these with similar themes. So Ruth and David, who are connected genealogically, um, and also in those stories, you're pulling out a lot of things related to what are the characteristics of God's people? Who is the rightful ruler of God's people? So this week and next week, we're going to pull together two water stories And these two water stories, not only Moses here, but we're going to talk about Jonah next week. But these have to do with God's character. What is God's character? And how do we perceive God's character? And so these are going to go together in a really nice way. So our context is Exodus. And Exodus is really fabulous as a book. But part of what it is doing is it's making sure that you don't forget Genesis. Everything about Exodus is looking back and snagging elements of the Genesis story and pulling it forward. And so we get, Exodus, or we get echoes of Genesis language all over the place in the book of Exodus. So listen for that as we go, because we have a decent amount of it here in our passage. Um, there's also something brand new that is happening in Exodus. So we're not just retelling Genesis stories, we're doing brand new things something that has never been done before. And we're looking to see what is God's character in this book. Now, this is really interesting because from Genesis to Exodus, we've moved from Abraham and this like family unit. We've been following a very family-focused story. But by the time we get to Exodus, this family has become a people group. They're a very large collection of people. And so now we're going to also be focusing on how does this group of people form their identity as belonging to God. So the first part of Exodus is really fascinating because in the first half of the book, we get all of these very quick-paced, very dramatic narrative stories. And then we get about halfway through and we stop at Sinai. And then we get the law code, 
which is hard for people to get through. And then we get through these long detailed instructions for how to build a tabernacle, and those are really hard to get through. And people talk, in fact, it's really interesting because the rabbis have been asking for ages. Why do we tell all of these stories in order to get us to Sinai and to get to the law code? The Jewish people, Israelites, the Jewish people, the rabbis later, all saw this point of being at Sinai and entering into a covenant with God as the crescendo moment. But what is the purpose of all of these narratives of which our passage falls in? Well, all of the narratives are developing the story of God's character, of who he is, because his people have to know him to know why it's so significant that they're entering into covenant with him. And so we're plowing through all these really amazing narratives to get to the point that when they stand at Sinai, they can stand there with fear and trembling because they actually understand the magnitude of what is about to happen. So at our point, we've already been through the plagues and the plagues, each time the plagues occur, the Lord says, I'm doing this as a sign to the Egyptians so that they may know who I am. And so the plagues, which are super interesting because if you do Egyptian history, each plague is tied into an Egyptian god. And it's just God trumping Egyptian god over and over and over and over, which is fantastic. And so God is proving himself. He's revealing himself, not proving himself, but he's revealing himself to the Egyptians as well as to his own people. And then we have the Passover meal. And now the Israelites have left in a hurry. They have exited out of Israel proper and they're on the Eastern side of Egypt, which puts them into very vulnerable landscape. Everything about the landscape when you're there, and this is hard for our, unless you've walked it, even pictures don't really do it justice. But when you walk into that landscape, everything about the landscape says, something is wrong, you're about to die. Like this is is not pleasant. And in that part of the landscape is where God is going to show up again and say, now here outside of the Egyptian economy, the Egyptian society, this is who I am. And this is who you are because you belong to me. So we're looking at this idea of who is God and how is he going to reveal himself. And I almost didn't put a map in only because the map is not necessarily, like I can't do an X marks the spot. But then it got to the end of the week and I was like, I can't do it. I have to have a map. So please pull out the map and I'll show you all the things we don't know. You can see on the left-hand side of the map, right, all of that greenery is following the flow of the Nile River as then it gets to the Delta, to the Mediterranean Sea. And up there in the Delta, I put a pin there, which is Ramses, which is a city that is mentioned as the place from where the Israelites leave. So this seems to be one of the places, and we have all of this evidence of these huge storehouses that Egypt was building in these locations. And then there's a yellow line, which I recognize when it's not on my computer screen, it's a little bit harder to see. But that yellow line, if you see, it goes from this area of the Delta and it goes up to the Mediterranean Sea and it just follows this coastline all the way up to Gaza. 
And if you were here last week, where the map was very relevant and super helpful, Gaza was on one of those maps because Gaza is one of the five Philistine cities that is marking for us a portion of Canaan, which is livable, the land where Israel is on their way to go. Now, we have so many great geographical details in the text. If we look through Exodus 12, Exodus 13, and the beginning of chapter 14, we're given all of these lists of city names until we get to the point where Israel is standing facing the Sea of Reeds. Now, we call it the Red Sea, and I'll come back to that, but the actual, the better translation is the Sea of Reeds. Now, it's really great because for people like me who are geographers, we really just were like, ooh, we have all this geographical data. The problem is we can't pinpoint most of those cities on that map. And so as good as I can get here is an ish. So I can point to a portion of the map, and if you draw, like, put your fingertip on top of it, you could go ish is where we're going. And this is what I would say. If you see um, like the beginning of the yellow line as it's leaving Egypt proper and going up towards Gaza, you can see there's another little strip of green that comes down to the Gulf of Suez. And then you move just beyond that and do you see how it's super blonde, beige, and then you go beyond that and it's super crazy rocky. That blonde beige area and then kind of going up towards the Mediterranean Sea, that area right there is where I'd say, ish, we're kind of there. Now, why do we always say Red Sea when it comes to this instead of the Sea of Reeds? Well, this, the word reed in Egyptian was then absorbed into the Hebrew language. And it, in the Hebrew text, it reads the Sea of Reeds. But later on, when we get to the uh, Septuagint, which was the translation into Greek, and then later translators, they started calling it the Red Sea. And then the Red Sea resonates with us because we look at the Red Sea at the top two northern fingers that go around the Sinai Peninsula on the map. There's all kinds of fantastical videos you can watch online that are actually really not scientifically based at all. But they will make these arguments for crossing these wide parts of the Red Sea. And I would say, actually, I favor, and if you want academic articles <laughs> related to this, I have lots and I can give them to you. But towards the north end of the Gulf of Suez, do you see all that greenery that is there that goes all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea? As you get closer to the Mediterranean Sea, um, and because this is a modern day map and not an ancient one, we could actually extend some of that greenery out a little further to the east. Ancient Egypt, well, the northern part of the Gulf of Suez actually went further north than it does today. And in ancient times, the Egyptians had all kind of canals and they had rivers that have since been covered over, but remain in the geological record for us. That area of water and networks of water and lakes and rivers and canals created an eastern boundary for Egypt. Egypt hated having all of these people from the east. They thought of them as marauders, shepherd families who were in the Sinai Peninsula who would invade and come into Egypt. 
And so all of those waterways created almost a geographical boundary on the eastern side of Egypt. So I'm going to put the Israelites having crossed somewhere up on that northwestern part of the Sinai Peninsula, and we can do other details later on. But I do want to point out that road, because that road is where Egypt kind of forced and pushed a lot of the traffic. So that is the primary road coming in from the north and from the east into Egypt. We have evidence of that road. It's a very well-documented road, and it hugs the shoreline. And at just about every 20 miles, there's an Egyptian guard post that is on that road. The rest of the terrain is very inhospitable and awful and will want you or will lead you to complain at a moment's notice. Okay, so I say all of that because... In chapter 14, or it might have been at the end of chapter 13, before we get to our passage, there's this recognition where God tells Moses, I'm not going to lead the people out on the road, which is the quickest way to get to their destination point. And God recognizes that road will terrify them because the level of obstacles they will face along the way is too much for this people group. I look at that and I'm like, but that is the most efficient way to go. And as a person who likes efficiency, I would prefer God get his people, or I could metaphorize everything and say, me, I want God to get me to the destination point in the most efficient way possible. But God recognized that's probably not possible. There's a few things you need to learn about me in order to know more about you in order to thrive in the place of your destination. And this is a portion of the journey. And God, in a very strategic way, leads the people out, and then he has them turn around, like make a hard 90-degree angle, and turn and go in the opposite direction, and then turn again and go in another direction. And news of this reaches Pharaoh, and this is all at the beginning of chapter 14. And Pharaoh one who is quite prideful in heart, goes, ah, they're confused. They don't know where they're going. And now they're going to be trapped between the inhospitable desert where no one can survive and the sea, which is also a place no one can survive. And Pharaoh looks at that and he's like, this is going to be easy picking. And so he gets all of his chariots and they go out to meet the Israelites so that he can swoop them up and bring them back into Egypt and force them into slavery again. The mention of the fact that Pharaoh has all of these chariots is also not a mistake. Chariots would be high technology at that time. This gives you the upper hand. If you have chariots and 600 of them, then there is something about the power with which you are going out to then gather and oppress another people group. And if we were listening for echoes, maybe you hear echoes of other times when there have been chariots and Israelite war stories, but that is a tangent that I'll leave just there. Okay, so we get into our passage. So the Israelite or the Egyptians are coming with all of their chariots. It's got to be absolutely terrifying. The Israelites are facing some sort of body of water. And the fact that it's called a sea does not mean it has to be salt water. It's just any fresh or salty 
body of water. And Pharaoh thinks that he is going to be able to capture them because the sea is at their back. And God is actually going to deliver them through the sea instead. But the people don't know that yet. And when they see the Egyptians coming, they say, this is in verse 11. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And this is going to be the first in a series of complaints that punctuate this whole wilderness wandering time. And Moses, who other times has a very explosive um, like anger, at this point seems to be modeling a compassion for the people and understanding. They are slaves who have just left, and of course, you would be afraid. But he turns to them and he says, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never be seen again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. This, that passage, that last phrase, is something that really jumped out at me this week. Because in the like onslaught of danger, on the onslaught of what on earth are we going to do, in the onslaught of who are we against the Egyptians, God goes, well, exactly, you're nothing. But it's the God of the Israelites who is something. And you just have to remain still and trust in who God is. It's interesting to me in that, I mean, God just did all the plagues and showed himself in very mighty ways in Egypt, but it's not just a story of these magical, wonderful, magnificent things that God has done in the past. We're looking at the continuation of God being there, of continuing to support them and guide them and provide for them and be a protector for them. And so then we get this, you know, what are we going to do in the face of being right like facing this sea. And in verse 18, this is God speaking, and he says, and the Egyptians, based on what God is going to do, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And this word Lord, I mean, it's not just Lord, it's Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It's the name of God that is the character of God that the Israelites are supposed to be learning. And This has been repeated like this wonderful cadence throughout all of Exodus, showing us that God is a God who self-reveals to people. And here we have to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians themselves. So we get to verse 21. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And here, again, we could rabbit trail into the scientific nature of can this actually happen, and why, and how deep would the water be. But I want to keep with the beauty of the miracle. But with the repetition of these words, or, not, or including these words, sea, wind, divided, waters divided, and dry land. Does that make you think of something? It's like, oh, it's one of those great Genesis echoes where you're going, 
oh, okay, here we go. The rider is flagging. There is something new that is happening and pay attention to the new thing that is going on. And then we get into a series of verses and if you read them really, really slowly, they're actually um, a little bit jumbled where you're not exactly sure exactly what's going on. Although what I would say or offer as a suggestion is in this morning watch at 24, the morning watch would be from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it seems to be that overnight when the cloud, the pillar of cloud, has been the rear guard for the Israelites, blocking them from the Egyptians. And the waters have parted and Israel is crossing. And as dawn comes, the Egyptians start to see where the Israelites are going. And then they run in hot pursuit. And then God starts to close the waters over that open passage. And this part I think is really interesting because it says he clogged the chariot wheels. Now we have, okay, so you have chariots that are going on dry ground, but it's actually in a watery area. So when water is reintroduced, it becomes muddy and like a suction cup that pulls things down. And now the thing that was the strength and the upper hand for the Egyptians is now the very thing that is going to take them down and is going to be a portion of their demise. And then God closes the waters over them. And I don't want to miss this one statement in verse 27, where it says, as the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. We're going to come back to that because that sounds terrible and awful, which it it kind of is but it matches another passage in Exodus. So we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But we end our passage with, and the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Where earlier on in verses 13 and then 14, Moses tells them, the Lord is doing this for you so that you will see who he is, what his character is, and you will believe in him. And now the Israelites have seen and they fear him in the great respect, but also fearful way you would of one who controls the natural world. And they believed him. The very next verse in chapter 15 pushes us into a song. Chapter 15 is a repetition of chapter 14, but in artistic form. We suddenly get poetry, we get song, and we get dance. And there's something to me that I ask these questions when I read this narrative, and it's such a cool narrative, but the only proper response to the narrative is art. Like, what else can you do? Because you can't logically sit down and go through a list of everything that God has just done you go through and artistically explain the joy and emotion and wonder at what you have just done, what you've just seen, and it pushes you into the presence of that God. But can we go a little further? I mean, that's the end of our chapter. I would like for us to attempt to go a little further, to widen the camera angle, not just to Exodus 14, 
but to maybe ask ourselves what kind of echoes, what kinds of themes, what kind of things are we seeing that shows up here that maybe makes us remember other stories that we've heard, not only in the past, but maybe in what is yet to come. Um, I would like for us to focus on water, especially the splitting of water. And if we were just to go, how many times, like how many stories can you come up with that have something to do with water and the splitting of water? Well, we already talked about Genesis 1, because that was repeated in verse 21. And we think of the spirit breath of God that hovers over the waters, and then the waters are divided. We can go to Genesis 6 and 7, where that created space gets uncreated in the flood, and then recreated again. And in both Genesis 1, in the original creation, what we see after this createdness of dividing the waters is relationship, where God has relationship with these people. And what we see in the Noah narratives at the end, when God has recreated, is covenant and relationship. And so when we see these themes in Exodus, we should be going, how does this map onto other stories we know? Plus, Chris mentioned this when he talked about the Noah story. There's an echo of the Noah story in the fact that Moses is saved from water by being put on a little ark, just like Noah's ark. It's the only time those two words are used. And if we read more around that story, we see at the end of chapter one in Exodus, Pharaoh says, we will kill every male Hebrew child by drowning them in the Nile. And then Moses is saved from that water. And now Moses is going to be the one who is going to help facilitate God saving his people through the water. And then we get to the end and the Lord tosses the Egyptians into the water. And if we look at Miriam's song in chapter 15, it's an exact repetition of what Pharaoh said when he said, we will hurl the Hebrew males into the Nile. And then it is the Lord who hurls the army of those who are going to destroy his people into the water so that they are the ones who die by water. We can go further though, right? If we move beyond Exodus and maybe you think, oh yeah, when we get to Joshua, doesn't Joshua lead the people through water? The Jordan splits, the water splits, they cross on dry ground. And while we're talking about the Jordan, well, we might as well talk about Elijah. And then Elisha, both of them are able to split the waters and they cross on dry ground. And this water imagery is something that should be evoking these questions for us because these stories are not exact replicas of the story, right? There's, there's different details in each of these stories, but it should lead us to ask these questions what do we learn about God from these stories? What is going on before the water split? And what is happening after the water split? And how many times is the relationship with God restored or renewed after the water split? 
So this is an interesting story and we can pursue this kind of theme and we pursue, we can pursue the Israelites all the way to the point where they become God's people at Sinai. And the mission that is given to them is to reflect God in the world, a bit like the way Ruth did and Boaz did. And we're going to see that the prophets over and over, like as the nation of Israel is really good at reflecting God and then they're really terrible at reflecting God, there's still this need to have another leader like Moses. And then we get to the Gospels. And then we get to this passage that's in Matthew. And this is not just a sweet story of baptism. This is a story that should be exploding with fireworks. When you read this story with the Hebrew Bible in mind, your brain should almost like not know what to do with the explosive color that is going on. Because now we have Jesus coming to the same part of the Jordan, by the way, that has already been split three different times, fun fact. And he's doing his own passing through of the water. And when he comes up, there's the breath spirit of God in the form of a dove who's hovering. And the blessing that Jesus is given, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, is an echo of both Abraham and David stories and Psalms. And then Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For how many days? 40. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years, not days. But what we see is Jesus is here retelling, summarizing, um, re-embodying the Israelite history where God was showing himself and the Israelites were struggling to figure out who God is. And yet they doubted his provision. They tried to force his hand and they were fearful of all of the nations that are around them. And Jesus goes into the wilderness and does the opposite. He fully trusts God's provision and God's timing. He refuses to force God's hand in the plan that God has. And he refuses to be allured by the earthly value of empire. And Jesus then becomes the redeemer that everyone's been waiting for. And as Jesus spends the whole rest of his ministry, if you say what happens after the water splits, Jesus's whole public ministry happens. The whole revelation of what God's kingdom is like. And God's kingdom is nothing like Egypt's economy. The kingdom of God is totally different. Egypt's economy is one that builds storehouses to collect grain, but they do that on the backs of slaves. And the Israelite economy or the economy of the kingdom of God is give us this day your daily bread. Give us what we need now that we take tomorrow as it comes that we trust that you are the one who leads us through the most dangerous kinds of context. And you are the one who is the provider and the protector and the guide through the journey that we are supposed to take. And then we come to the Lord's table 
here um, in just a little bit, which is a Passover meal. Its roots are in the Passover meal, in the story of redemption. And part of what we do is we come forward at the crescendo of our own service is to remember God as redeemer and to bring to the forefront of our minds, not just what God has done in the past, but what he is doing now to be the leader, provider, and director. We are remembering God's character and we're forcing ourselves to see who it is that God is revealing to himself today. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, one who has engaged the human history for so many thousands of years, the one who has a complicated story, the one we cannot even begin to fathom to fully understand, but the one that we can be determined to see and catch glimpses of. And as we do, as we catch glimpses of your power, as you reveal yourself to us, we can respond in worship and adoration. And may we, the church body of resurrection, do that, not just here together as a community, but as we go and live the busyness of our lives out in the city from here. May we always be looking to see how it is that you are providing, and may the response be one of worship. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.